The number one trait women look for in a man is a sense of humor. And if you don't think you have one, guess what? Yes, you do. And I can reach my tiny little hand down deep inside of you and pull it out. I've worked with hundreds of men and we've got their banter game up to where women are responding. They're not getting ghosted, they're getting dates, and they're getting, you know, something else. So if you want to knock more than just her socks off, go to kristenandchill.com. If you banter better, you'll date better. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Want to know the hidden meaning behind what women say and do? Then check out the Chictionary. It's the Wing Girl Methods manual that gives you a full rundown of all the things women say that confuse men written in dictionary format. Go get a copy of the Chictionary by going to winggirlmethod.com slash chick. That's winggirlmethod.com slash chick. Coming up on this week's episode of the Ask Women podcast, we have Dana Killian talking about addicts and narcissists and why you probably shouldn't get involved with them, but if you do, how to handle it. We have so much of that and more coming up, so keep listening. Hey, you guys, welcome back to another episode of the Ask Women podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Carney, not along with Marnie Kinris today, but we have a wonderful guest who is going to talk to us about searching for addiction, searching for narcissism in the people you date. We have Dana Killian on. She's the author of the memoir, Where the Shadows Dance. She has a very interesting background and we're going to get into it right now. So Dana, thanks for chilling with me for a little bit. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Good, good. So we're going to talk about screening for narcissism in the people that you're dating, as well as addiction. I do think a lot of our audience, and I think Marnie would say the same thing, tends to date narcissist style people because I think narcissists lean toward the type of audience we attract, which are guys who are very nice, who bend over backwards, who are trying to find their footing in terms of their own voice, etc. So yeah, I definitely think that's something really prevalent. And so I would love to start on that note and hear what you have to say on that, and we'll go from there. When I give a little background first on how I come to talking on this yes, subject. Yes, please do. I didn't know if you wanted me to just spit out like, oh, she's married to an alcoholic. <laughs> I would gladly <laughs> do, do that. that. Okay, all right. I'll let you do it. <laughs> so I'm coming to this from the perspective of someone who was married to a high-functioning alcoholic for 25 years. and. Anybody who has been intimately involved with an alcoholic or anybody suffering from some kind of addiction, you know, struggles with a number of things. Part of it is assessing whether or not there's a problem. And part of it is whether the individual is a full-on narcissist or not. They always have narcissistic tendencies. That is, I view narcissism as kind of a spectrum. It may not be a clinical 
total narcissistic diagnosis in a therapy sense. But there are narcissistic behaviors because the addiction drives need. Right. And that that need, in this case, is the next fix. And the next fix involves eventually lying and covering up and doing whatever you need to do to center yourself and get your needs met. So a narcissistic behavior inside for us was a relationship that was on the surface, very, very loving. And I would not describe my former husband as a narcissist, but behaviors within that, particularly because of and in conjunction with his alcohol addiction were prevalent. So that's common with someone who is an alcoholic or someone who has addiction type behaviors to have narcissistic leanings, maybe not if they didn't have the addiction, but the addiction brings it out. I think so, because what happens in addiction is eventually the person that you love, the loved one of myself, you are pressuring that addict to change. There's something in the relationship that isn't feeling right, whether you know it's an addiction or not yet, there's something wrong and you're pushing that addict. You may not know how deep into the problem they are. You may not know uh, all the signs and what to look for, but as you pressure an addict to change, their natural tendencies are not to want to face whatever the problem is. Right. Because the usually the substance is not the core problem. The substance is the blunt. It's the filter. It's what they use to fill whatever psychological hole is inside them. And as you begin pressuring that addict to do something different, the idea of taking away the substance is terrifying because then they can't they don't have the tools to face. They don't want to admit that they're an addict. They don't want to admit they have a problem at all in most cases. So the behavior starts shifting into secrecy and lying. And those are things that are absolutely part of narcissism. My needs before everyone else. Right, right. Yeah, when you quote-unquote threaten or even bring up the idea of taking away what they need to function or to feel okay on a multitude of levels, physically, emotionally, it's like their back goes up against a wall. And when your back is up against a wall, that's when you'll start flailing your limbs uncontrollably in a sense. Correct. Not, I'm not being literal necessarily with that. I mean, it definitely can get literal, <laughs> but that's when someone will resort to things that aren't so well thought out and uh, start acting, acting out. So guys who are out there dating, I've always been guilty of suggesting this and the guys that I work with every now and then, depending on who they are or how I can read them. I say, when you go out on a date, if you need to loosen up a little bit, have a drink. It's okay to have a drink. Obviously, I say that with a grain of salt on your margarita, not just a grain of salt, but a grain of salt in your margarita. But, you know, it is something that can become a crutch. I never want it to get to that point to be a crutch. But if a guy is on a date with a girl, what can he look for if they're out having a nice time and maybe she's having drinks because she's having a nice time? Or is she having drinks because that's the only way she can have a nice time? What's the difference? What do you look for? I don't think that's something you can see in a single date. Addiction or using alcohol or some kind of substance as a crutch, it's a repeating pattern. It's something that builds up over time. And the line between a heavy drinker 
and an addict is hard to see. In our particular case, my former husband is a high-functioning alcoholic, so he didn't fit any of the signs. He was not slurring, he was not stumbling, he was not being obnoxious, but there was a need to drink. And as our relationship progressed, it was the pressure to change that showed that the need existed. Before you keep going, why was obviously being a functioning alcoholic isn't a good thing, but what was the need to change? What was it that made you say, even though he's not slurring, he's not acting weird, he's standing up straight, he's able to go to work, what for you told you that this isn't right, this isn't working? Was it the narcissistic stuff that was coming into play? The narcissism wasn't obvious until later on, much further into the disease and much further into the relationship. The early indications, and again, we were married for 25 years, so this is a slow process for us. Like I said, it's not something you're going to pick up in one or two dates. In our particular situation, I began to become concerned about a problem because I was finding empty bottles in strange places. Empty bottles under the seat of a car empty bottles on the top of a kitchen cabinet, places they don't belong. And that in itself is concerning and you question it, but it's not a sign of, yeah, he's definitely a drunk. It becomes like a steady pressure of what is going on. There seems to be an ongoing pattern of drinking. Again, that's not necessarily indicative of a problem. A lot of people drink and they are not addicts. What became the obvious turning point for me was as I began to have conversations with him about the level of his drinking, he then switched to secrecy. So the drug, rather than cutting back, the drug of choice, which was booze for him, became something hidden. Mm -hmm. It's the inability to stop the hiding of behavior. To me, those are the first real serious indicators Um, Obviously, for some people, a more classic alcoholic, you have a constant something in your hand, a constant obnoxious behavior that was not part of my relationship. But it it is a part of something that you can see in most classic alcoholic relationships where people talk about, ah, that's just mom, that's just Joey. This is the behavior that we see. They get, they have too much to drink all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But that was not. And it's a more subtle. It's harder to find in a very high-functioning alcoholic. And you really only see it when you start putting pressure on the addict to change. And then you've got to watch for lying. Right. So if someone is in the dating process and they're coming up against the realization that, okay, I've gone out on six, seven, eight dates with this person. I'm starting to feel somewhat committed. I like them, but I'm noticing this behavior. Do you suggest trying to stick with them through it and quote unquote, change them? Or do you run for the hills? You know, because someone might go, oh, but this is my person. They've checked every box, every single thing that I've wanted, but this one thing, and unfortunately this one thing is a huge thing. Yeah. So what do they do? I think that's a really hard question to grapple with early in a relationship. I think the reality is that early in a relationship, you can't change that person. But you also may not know, you may have concerns, but you don't fully know the extent of the problem. 
So I think what I would suggest at that stage of a relationship, if you believe that this is somebody special and you might have a future with them, you start the conversations into what kind of watching drinking behavior, conversations about what they do in their time when they're not with you. Are they hungover a lot? Are they going out drinking with their friends all the time? Is alcohol a substantial part of their life, even when they're not with you? Has it come up before? Has a previous relationship, I would ask about previous relationships, was alcohol an issue? Ask the individual, how do you feel about your drinking? Are you, you know, you drink more than I do. Is this something you've ever been concerned about? Finding ways early on to kind of put the toe in the water to see how the individual is going to respond. Defensiveness to me is an immediate sign. You've got a big problem there. And this may not be somebody you want to move forward with because the defensiveness is also a common, the covering up, the defensiveness, the lying. Those are big, big flags about behaviors in general, but particularly with addictive personalities and narcissists. It's not me, it's them. I don't have a problem. Do you find with addictive personalities, in your case with your ex-husband, that there was a slight addiction to you or to love as well as alcohol, you know, other things. So it might've heightened the romance or the experience with you because I find, and this can border on a narcissistic conversation as well, but I find that people who tend to lean narcissistic can be very charismatic. Absolutely. And that's such a draw. You know, you get really reeled in by someone like this. So, yeah, I think I asked my question. <laughs> I don't want to re-ask it. Because then I'll sound like I'm the alcoholic who's yeah, drinking and yeah. not paying attention to what I'm saying. <laughs> well, it, it's very difficult to sort through because those qualities of being intelligent, uh, successful, charming, those are also very common in high-functioning addicts. Right. They cover up their behaviors with that personality. And they don't really want to admit that the problem is underneath. Would you say that's the same for men and women? That they're both able to hit that level of charm, charisma, excitedness? Or is that more of a man trait? That if you're a man dating, you don't have to maybe look for it as much as a woman would? I don't have any scientific background, but my personal experience through my relationship, through group meetings, AA, Al-Anon, all of those various support groups, I would absolutely agree with you that they're, the charm offensive on the male side mm -hmm. is heavy. Yeah. Whether that is a narcissist, whether that is an addictive personality, whether there are parts of both that are going on. I think women have different ways in which they present their narcissism and the ways they present their perhaps a more flirtatious style that comes out instead of, is a different kind of charm, if you will. Right, right. The inhibitions are lowered, therefore Correct. flirting can be Correct. increased. Correct. Yeah. Flirting, sexual behavior, those things are, are a little more forward. Absolutely. So what did you do, if you don't mind getting personal, what did you do toward the quote-unquote end, you know, getting toward divorce, to say, to this person that you've loved for so long, I can't handle this anymore. I can't take this. How did you present that to them, to him? 
yeah. in a palatable way, you know, because it can, I mean, obviously <laughs> maybe it wasn't in a palatable way as I'm sure, you know, it's a tough thing to do. Well, like any addictive relationship, there were numerous conversations over the years and we did get to the point where I got to a, you can have me or you can have vodka. Wow. Those are your choices. Yeah. But these are in longer term relationships. It is not one step forward. It's not linear. If we are deeply emotionally committed, we're trying to help them. You know, women are, are such helpers. And I think as you've described some of your male listeners, that empathetic quality is just a huge part of us. And we want to help them. We don't want to uh, let somebody wonderful suffer like this. And as you get deeper into an addictive relationship, you also have all of these fears about what's going to happen to this person. Right? He's going to die. Yeah. I mean, that's the bottom line. Right. This is killing him. If I leave him, what's going to happen? He could die. And it would be on me, and I have to I have to live with the guilt. But what we often don't understand is that in this process of trying to be loving and supportive and helpful, it goes on for so long, and we are losing ourselves in the process. Right. We are dying just in a different way emotionally. So we eventually did get to that. You can have me, or you can have vodka. It was only then that he went into rehab. And then did he come out of rehab for a stint of sobriety and fall back into his, his ways? The back and forth in sobriety, you know, falling out, that was not associated with rehab. That was associated with all of the other therapies he had tried prior. Rehab for him, by the time he went, did get him sober. However... Uh, when he went into rehab, I found out some other really devastating things about his behavior. And that's where we move into the narcissism part. Mm, okay. Well, that was a perfect segue for me to say, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about these narcissistic traits and what to look out for, what it looks like. We're often bamboozled by them. So we want to look out for ourselves. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So keep listening. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do to certain things until we talk through it. And if we don't know what we want, how can we be doing anything right in our lives, but especially dating? So if you've done therapy before or you're just dipping your toe in, BetterHelp is a way to get back into it or to get started in such a convenient manner. It's done all online. It's designed to fit your schedule. It's flexible, convenient. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And guess what? You can feel free to switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. I know for me in the past when I had done therapy, trying to just get a therapist to respond in the first place was hard, let alone switch therapists. So BetterHelp is the way to do therapy today. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash AskWomen today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash AskWomen. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible 
because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you listen to the Ask Women podcast, then you are already miles and miles and miles ahead of other men when it comes to attracting and getting the girls you want. But I must confess, there's one missing piece in the puzzle, and that's flirting or the ability to ignite sexual chemistry with any girl you meet in a matter of minutes. Most guys suck at flirting. They can't flirt their way out of a paper bag. But as your personal wing girl, I can't let you be one of those guys. That's why I want to show you the most effective step-by-step formulaic approach to flirting with any girl you like. This formulaic approach has been tested on thousands of girls and has been proven to work like magic. Yes, magic. You just apply the formula and see results instantly, and it's that powerful. To find out everything about this flirting formula, all you have to do is go to winggirlmethod.com slash flirty. I've made a special video for you where I reveal what this formula is all about. Go to winggirlmethod slash flirty and you'll find out all about it. Okay, we are back and we're going to get into narcissism, which makes me so excited because I'm a narcissist and I love to talk about myself. So this is perfect for me. I'm just kidding. I'm not a narcissist. I don't think I am. (laughs) Maybe I think I would be faring much better in life if I was in a way. But let's talk about that narcissistic end of things. Uh, I would love to hear you just elaborate and then I'm going to dig a little deeper. Sure. First of all, if you're questioning whether you're a narcissist, you are not. Right. (laughs) Okay, good news. One indication right there. (laughs) You hear that, my sister, who thinks I'm obsessed with myself? (laughs) Again, we have to also think about narcissism as a spectrum. Right. And are we looking for narcissistic behaviors related to specific topics, or are we really off the deep end clinically with a total narcissistic personality who cannot see the world anyone else's perspective. And that's a really important thing to to make note of, particularly during the early stages of dating. I think that is knowable. I think that is something that you can watch for in early stages of dating. So say that again. You said not being able to see something from someone else's perspective. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm an individual who lived a life with a lot of therapy around it. (laughs) So you're un- an unofficial therapist. <laughs> I'm, I've earned, as I've said, I've earned my PhD through lived experience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I think of narcissism in two categories. One is, yes, the individual is self-involved. It is me, 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 me at all times. But the, probably even the more damaging part is, I don't care what happens to you. Mm-hmm. It is the lack of concern for what other people are feeling, how they might be harmed, what the consequences of my behavior on them might be. Those are important things to watch for. And it's, I think those are easier things to, to kind of suss out as we're, as we're involved in getting to know people because we have opportunities to see them around others. Can we see them? And you know, if, if we're telling them something terrible that happened to us, and they immediately change the subject and go, back to me, please. Right. That's not a good quality. That is not an individual who's going to be empathetic towards you. No. That's a problem 
for a relationship. This might be an obvious question, but how do you delineate between someone who has a strong constitution? This is what I am. This is what I expect. This is what I like to, you know, focus on in my life. I don't want to be thrown off into a different path by the person I'm dating versus I'm a narcissist. I think that's a really good question because we are in a society, particularly, we often reward people. We reward men for success and knowing what we want. We are coming to a place where we reward women more often for knowing what we want. And we think of it as setting our boundaries. The difference to me is, does the individual have empathy for others? Like, wait a minute, right now, what I need is more important. I'm in pain right now. You need to hear me. Or I had something wonderful happen. You need to hear me. It's not about you right now. Right. Can the individual shift between those things? Are they always taking it back to themselves? Even when you're having a moment of crisis or you're seeing a situation on TV, there's a lot of, whether it's violence, whether it's somebody in your life that has been treated poorly, family members, we have opportunities where we can inquire, have conversations. How did you respond? We can watch for this stuff. If the empathy is not part of the equation, it's not about what I want to do now. It is about, can you set aside you for 10 minutes? Because this is what I need now. It's important to me. Yeah. What would you say about someone who relates to someone else's experience by sharing their own experience? And I know I've been a perpetrator of this and I've learned to get better. But if I hear someone say, you know, I had a horrible day, I got into, you know, a little fender bender and then my boss yelled at me and da, da, da. The way in the past, occasionally that I've shown I understand and I am empathetic is to say, oh, I totally understand. The exact same thing happened to me and it was the worst, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've always tried not to bogart you know, the story and make it about me, but adding in my own experience, does that sound narcissistic? And if someone does that, is that an offense? You know, would you look at that as, eh, maybe that's something I should keep my eye on or that's just their personality and they're trying their best? I think it's a watch. (laughs) It's about how much of that is occurring. Yeah. If it's a constant behavior where where the individual is always turning the conversation back to them. Even if you're well-intentioned with, I had this experience, I think it might be beneficial for you to hear because this is what we're talking about. Does the individual you're talking to suddenly look bored and frustrated? Right, right. Are we moving the conversation into another direction? You can stop yourself and say, I'm sorry, I jumped in, please finish. Right. Being conscious of not monopolizing, trying to be conscious of not turning the conversation where the person who wanted to say something to you may not have been done. Right. And we can go back to those questions. I'm sorry, but what more did you want to say on this? And when we are in relationships, we can talk to our partners or our soon-to-be, hopefully, partners to ask for that feedback. Absolutely. Let me know if I'm saying too much. Let me know if I'm hogging the conversation. Well, earlier you mentioned defensiveness and that's such a limiter 
in growth in relationships. And so if you can ask, or if you can say, you know, I'm sorry, let, let me actually get back to what you were saying. It shows a lack of defensiveness, which makes that other person so much more comfortable with sharing because Absolutely. they know that you're not going to have yourself in a knot be, with just uh, nerves mm-hmm. of waiting to, to feel attacked. And if someone thinks that someone always feels attacked, it's going to be much more difficult to get close to that person. Yeah, that language around, please finish, or I'm sorry I interrupted, or were you done? Was there more you wanted to say? All of those things are telling the individual, I hear you. Right. I respect you. Right. And those are so important in relationships. Absolutely. I do think that a lot of guys that listen to our show, and of course, women who are dating as well, but a lot of guys that listen to the show or men that I've worked with or that Marnie has worked with, either will talk way too much or will not talk at all. (laughs) And so there's obviously a balance that you want to strike. But what would you recommend to a guy that just talks too much? You know, it's not a narcissistic thing. You know, and obviously you can stop and say, you know, wait, tell me more about you. But sometimes they go off on a runaway train. How do they stop themselves before the train even rolls out of the station? I'm laughing a little bit here because as somebody who is now, you know, single at a point in my life I didn't expect to be, this kind of uh, male behavior is uh, coming up in my personal life a lot. Yes, I can imagine. Men who talk at me, not with me. Exactly. And that is the key. Is this a conversation or is it a sales pitch? Mm -hmm. Stop trying to sell us. Speak with us. Right. Try to hear each other. Have right. a conversation. Right. We're not in the market to buy a car. Correct. Right. You don't need to push it. You don't it. need to tell me everything about you <laughs> before I get away. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, when you tell someone everything about you in one moment, all at one time, you're killing any mystery that could be left. And mystery can be exciting for women. We want to each time... I would imagine you may experience this or want to experience this. When you go out with someone, it's exciting to learn more about them and more about them and more about them each time you go because it's like, oh, I thought I, I, thought I knew this guy already. But wow, here's this other piece that he's just revealing now. And then we go out two weeks from now and there's another little piece. Okay, obviously you don't want it to get to the point where then they reveal so much one of the pieces is, I'm an axe murderer. <laughs> you know, like you'd like all the revelations to be, you know, good ones. But a lot of men don't seem to understand that concept of slowly revealing because they're trying to sell themselves. But you're a beautiful woman. And so you're dating. And I can imagine you have, I'm going to sound very old fashioned, but you have a lot of suitors or <laughs> want to be suitors. I don't know if you're going out with all of them. For the men listening who are dating post-divorce or post when they thought they would be dating, what's some advice that you would give them that you desperately would want to see on a date that you're not seeing? I think the most respectful thing that you can do on a date, whether you're a man or you're a woman, is approach it as conversation. I'm here to get to know you. Let the person feel heard. Be curious about them. I have some, you know qualifiers, if you will, 
Please share. When I meet men, and some of these are about men that are talking at me mm-hmm. and men who seem to be only interested in wanting to date me because they like the way I look. Mm-hmm. That's all I care about. Mm-hmm. Maybe something else. Maybe I care what you think. That is such a turnoff for me. I do not date men like that. They are not interesting to me. We need to have respect and conversation and give and take. That's all it is. I want to feel heard. I want you to hear me. I want to hear you. It has to be dialogue and conversation. You'll figure the rest of it out. Right. Are you doing any sort of screening before the date that might make you lean in the direction that they won't be someone who's just there for your looks and then turns out that they are? Being a new author with a memoir, I have a very important screening tool. And that is, I mention as I meet men who think they want to date me, I mention that I've written a memoir. And the response that I get from the men that I do not want to date is, oh, and then they immediately change the subject Uh, back to something uh, about them. And that is a sign to me that I want to date you because I don't like the way you look. I I don't really want to know anything about you. Memoir (laughs) is something vulnerable. Not everybody writes a memoir. Can you take two seconds and say, what's it about? Yes. Men don't read memoir often, not women's memoir, but it's a sign of interest in me as a person. Why would you have done it? What would have happened to you that caused you to write this very vulnerable thing? So that's what I call, so I teach men how to banter and converse with women in a fun, playful way, but also in an engaging and mature way. But one of the terms that we talk a lot about is something that I call conversationally meaty words. If you hear something meaty, and by that I mean it's like a turkey leg, like it's just, you know, it's a word that's got tons of meat around it that you can really bite into and get into and really satiate yourself from. And by satiating yourself, I mean really learning information about her. These are words like memoir. There's so much to that. There's so much weight behind that word. There's so much meat around it. And men need to keep their eyes or ears, well, eyes if you're in a text online situation, or ears if you're in person. But there's words like, you know, journal, memoir. Like if a woman says she writes in her journal, whoa, what's in there? You know, you don't have to ask pointedly in a sense that like you actually want to know. You can tease slightly about it or, you know, but there's something underneath that. Why is she journaling every morning? What has it done for her? Where has it taken her? So what you're saying, I'm really grateful for, for me as a salesman selling my own tools here for the guys listening. That's so important for women. If you brush over, you know, it's, I learned this concept in a hosting class I took in Los Angeles and it was very LA. It was very red carpet based. So if you're interviewing a celebrity on a red carpet, but they would say in this class, if a celebrity comes up to you and you know, it's, oh, what dress are you wearing? Where are your jewels from? And then they happen to throw in, you know, my dress is from this, but I have a little bump. You know, I might look a little bigger because I'm pregnant. There's a little bump. And then the interviewer, and this most likely doesn't happen. They don't really reveal it like that on the red carpet. But if the interview just keeps going forward and it's like, oh, cool. And what's your next project? It's like, what? This person just revealed to you, this celebrity just revealed really personal information. Maybe you're the first one to find out. 
that they're pregnant. You don't skip over that. You sink your teeth into it. That sounds kind of creepy and not appropriate, (laughs) (laughs) but you know what I mean? But it's the same idea. Yeah. So I'm so glad that you pointed that out because I think that's so important for men to hear. Yeah. Not everybody writes memoir, obviously, but that is just something unusual about me. And it's an easy tool for me to say, does this individual, does this guy have interest in me as a person? There's something interesting and unusual about everyone. You could ask questions. What's the most unusual place you've traveled? What is the scariest thing you've ever done? What is the most fascinating book you've ever read? There are all kinds of questions that are just general, normal, get to know you, that give you a little, as you say, meat to dig into and to say, tell me more. Right, exactly. In your dating process right now, just for logistic purposes for the men listening, where are you finding the men that you're going out with? Are you on online or? I have not dated at all, simply because I have not yet found an individual. <laughs> the candidates have been failing the test. Oh, so <laughs> wait, you've been on dates, but you're not dating? No, or you I have not even gotten to the first date because I have yet to find a single man who says, tell me about that book. Wow, that not is... One. You know, I have low expectations for people, but that (laughs) fell even lower below my expectations. Yeah. So are these people, people from the internet? Are these people that you've met through friends? No, I'm not online. I'm not online. It's people I've met through friends, just out and about, you know, yeah, I go out for dinner, I have dinner alone and there'll be some guy at the table saying hi. Yeah. Yeah. And that's your litmus test. Do they ask about (laughs) this if they don't? That's a huge indicator of what's to come and what they don't offer. Having gone through what I went through in my marriage, I am not interested in a self-absorbed individual. Uh, Yeah. And this is one way for me to find out. And I think it's not a bad idea for everybody who is dating to have some kind of litmus test question, whatever it is, that gets at the heart of what is my must-have in a relationship. Mm -hmm. For me, it's an empathetic person. Somebody who is not self-centered, somebody who is going to view me as a partner and find some questions, find some subject matter to introduce and use that as a litmus test. Yeah, yeah. Why waste time? Right, right. My litmus test for the longest time when I was single would be something that seems so insignificant but is so big would be something like when they cross the street and they know another car is trying to turn do they walk super slow or do they speed up just, just a tad? They don't run. You know, it's, we have the right of way, but just a tad to show I'm aware of the world around me and I'm trying to function in a nice flowing society. If they mosey on, on past, then I'm like, mm, I don't think we're going to be on the same page. So these little litmus tests can be very small from, you know, if you zoom out, but if you zoom in, they're really big. Yeah. How do you treat the wait staff when you go out for dinner? Exactly. How Stuff do you like treat that. the doorman in your building? I mean, all of that is the guy that parks the car, whatever it is. How do you treat the janitor? Right, right. This is an indication of character. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of character and going back to narcissism, I think my final question in regard to it would be, do you tell a narcissist in a nice way that this is going on and it may be trouble for them in the future? Or do you just let it go and have nothing more to do with it? 
I think that depends on the status of the relationship. Is this a long-term situation? If it's a long-term situation, you've had these conversations in bits and pieces, that there, there's a pattern of behavior. If it's an early relationship, a true narcissist is not going to change because you tell them you don't like their behavior. Right, right. So you can say it if you feel the need to be truthful about uh, or use an example of, I don't like how you or I'm not feeling heard or some other language that maybe gets around, but there's probably not a lot of, you know, I don't want to date you anymore because you're a total narcissist. Get out of my life. Right. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't accomplish anything for the narcissist. They won't change because you said something. But there may be opportunity for those that are on different part of the spectrum to say, look, I don't feel heard. You talk over me. You're not paying attention to me. I'm not feeling seen. Whatever it is, there are ways to put some qualities to it. And this is, like I said, not somebody who is on the far end of the clinical narcissism because they won't care. They won't hear it. It's somebody else's problem. Yeah, yeah. But you can, you know, float little things about specific behaviors. Yeah. General language is not going to change anything. But in the moment of, you're not hearing me. I'm a mess. Yeah. I need you to be there and you weren't. Right, right, right. Those are important things because that's us standing up for ourselves and finding our voice to tell how we feel and what's true for us. Right, right, right. Well, this has been very interesting and I have to end the show by asking you, what is in your memoir? I have an idea, but yeah. I want you to date me. So I'm basically I'm asking you on a date is what's going on right now. <laughs> Tell us about your memoir. I would love to hear sure. about it. Sure. The title is Where the Shadows Dance. He got sober, I got broken. Mm. It is my story of how I became collateral damage in my former husband's self-destruction. Wow. Wow. It's often the part of the story that is not told, those of us on the sidelines. Right. We hear lots of stories about addicts, what they remember, what they piece together, how they got sober. And those of us on the sidelines, we are invisible. We mm -hmm. are silent. Mm -hmm. We are told to just, because everything is about the addict. And I felt as part of my own healing and part of what I could do to kind of give back to others who have come out the other side or trying to figure out how to come out the other side in these kind of difficult relationships, if I could find my voice and tell what I experienced, I would be helping others in the process. So that's my goal. The book is out May 18th and it's up for pre-order now. Well, everyone should check it out. And I think that's very admirable. Thank you. Such an admirable thing to write about. So thank you so much for chatting. I've really enjoyed our chat. Everyone, make sure you check out Dana Killian's book. and. If you have a Instagram or a Twitter, anything like that, that you'd like to put out so people can stay in touch. My website is danakillian.com. I am also on Instagram at author. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, so everybody look out for those narcissists and addicts, of course, unless they're addicted to eating really healthy, I guess. Maybe <laughs> even that could get out of control. But, you know, it's all about balance. So... Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the show so you don't have to download individual episodes. Rate and review. Tell your friends about the show because you're not the only one who should be getting some action out there. Your friends should be too. <laughs> so new episodes come out every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific. Make sure you keep listening. We are so appreciative of you.
If you guys want to work with me, go to kristenandchill.com and you can always work with Marnie as well at wingirlmethod.com. But thanks again, Dana Killian, and we will see you guys next week. <laughs>